And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. If you don't have a Bible, halfway down the aisles, there's some black Bibles that you can use. They're also over here on the sides. You can grab one of those. In the middle of that Bible is a big book of Psalms, 150 Psalms. We've been going through this together. Not every Psalm, of course, but um, here and there and uh, skipping a few from time to time. And now we come to Psalm 50. It's a psalm that tells us what God is like. And so many parts of God's word do this, and they do it in various ways. I've said before that the Bible uses all kinds of different word pictures for God. That he's a father, and we're his children. That he's a husband, and his people are his bride. That he's light, and he exposes sin. That he's a fire, which means that he's glorious, and that we can't look upon him. He's water, and he satisfies our quench. She's also like a mother hen that gathers her chicks to herself and spreads her wings over them. He's a farmer. He's a, a mighty warrior, a king. He's a shepherd, we saw in Psalm 23. And here in Psalm 50, we see that he's a judge. He's the judge. Let's read it together. God's word says, The mighty one... God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones. Who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I'm God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I'll deliver you. And you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's word. Do you notice the legal terms throughout this psalm? It's a courtroom sort of setting. It says in verse 1 that he summons the earth. It's court language. He's the judge in verse 4. The judge, he says, it says in verse 6. It says in verse 7 that he will testify against Israel. And then in verse 21, it's a charge that's laid before them. This paints a picture of God holding court. He's, he's ascending to his bench. It's not a literal story. It's a, it's a word picture. He is judge. One day there will be a final judgment this is talking in bigger terms than just one specific time where God decided to take up judgment and really put the litmus test to, to his creation or to his people. 
but it tells us something about his ways. It tells us something about how he disciplines us. It tells us something about what is reality, even when it doesn't seem like it. In other words, because God is silent, because it's been so long since he's done something like flood the earth in judgment, it seems like maybe he's forgotten. It seems like maybe he'll never do it again. Maybe he'll never bring a kind of universal judgment again. But that would be wrong. So it's important to see, just first and foremost, that God is the judge. That's the first thing in your notes. Verses 1 through 6 tell us God is the judge. These verses insist that there's one universal God, and that one universal God is the one ultimate universal judge. It might be easily missed in our eyes, but it wouldn't have been to those who would read this in the time of Asaph when it was written. Notice verse 1. It says, the mighty one. That's to emphasize the oneness of God. That God is what we say, he's monotheistic, right? He's one God. There aren't other gods according to the Bible, according to the God who says that he is the one. Notice the phrase too, God the Lord. Now the Hebrew word for God here is just an average, typical, everyday name for deity. It's the same word that the other nations surrounding Israel would have used to describe their gods, Elohim. It's saying God is the Lord. And notice in most of your Bibles, it'll have Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This represents a, a Hebrew word. It's a special word. It's not written out in our Bibles as such. It's the name that God gave himself. In the book of Exodus, when Moses asked, who should I say is sending me to go do this, this gutsy thing of marching into Egypt, Pharaoh's quarters, and saying, let the people go. And they say, what name does this God have of yours who's telling you to do this? What should I tell him? And God says, tell him, I am who I am. In Hebrew, there's four letters, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. In our English letters, he's the Lord. So when it says God the Lord, it's saying God is one. He is the God who has revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh. That's the God. That God is the one God, the mighty one, and he is the one judge. And he's glorious and he's fearful as judge. Even in our day, there's still a bit of honor and, well, majesty. Maybe even a little bit of fear that goes along with a judge who walks out of his chambers and then the bailiff says, All rise, the honorable so-and-so is now presiding in session. Something like that. Besides the president of the United States, I can't think of another office, another kind of person, another job in our country that gets that kind of lofty introduction. I mean, we would never do that with a preacher. They would never do it at your work unless you are a judge. They don't even do it for senators. They do it for the president when he walks into the Senate to give a big speech. And they do it every day, maybe multiple times a day for a judge. The honorable, you must stand up. This is what, this is what England does for its queen. And we have it here in our country. Again, it's honor. There's majesty. He's wearing a robe. No one wears robes except Episcopal preachers and judges. And you when you get out of the shower. But that's something else. (laughs) Honor and majesty and even something to fear for a judge, for a president. How much more the president of all nations, the king of all the world, of all times, the judge of all the earth. So as God enters this court scene, we see several descriptions of both glory and yet threat, danger, trouble ahead, reason to fear. 
He summons the whole earth in verse 1. No judge, no president, no king of any time has ever been able to do that, to summon the whole earth. They can pretend they can. They may want to. They may try to get to that point by conquering and conquering and conquering. But, but no judge, no king, no president's ever done that. This God can. He does. He has. He will. Verse 2 says, he shines forth as he does this. No drab black robe. He just bursts forth in glory, shining like the sun. He comes, verse 3 says, and he comes to speak. He will not be silent anymore. And notice the second half of verse 3. Before him is a devouring fire. You see both glory and threat, not just fire but fire that devours. Before him is a tempest, not a tempest you watch through your TV, not a tempest far away that you watch safely from the coastline, but he is a mighty tempest who comes and spins in judgment, glory and threat. Now, later on in the psalm, we'll see kinder, gentler descriptions of God, and they're glorious And they're particularly glorious after we get this right, that he comes forth devouring in fire, mighty as a tempest. So we're not there yet. The kind and caring stuff is shockingly sweet once we get to it. But notice how shockingly glorious and threatening it is that the judge comes when we're the ones who are summoned. In verse 4, he calls on creation, all of creation, heavens and earth to be his witnesses. But they're not witnesses like we think of witnesses for our courtrooms today. Not witnesses of a crime. Not witnesses who will substantiate the case against the accused. These aren't that kind of witness because God needs no kind of witness. He knows. There's no judge like this on earth. No judge who sees all, who knows all. He actually needs witnesses. He needs people to corroborate an accusation or to throw it over. God doesn't need that, but he has witnesses of heaven and earth in poetic language. But they're witnesses of his righteousness in judgment, and they are witnesses to his rightness to judge. That's what they say. Verse 6. The heavens declare that he's righteous, for God himself is judge. That's what he called in the heavens and the earth to do, to corroborate this, that he is God, the judge, and he's righteous. Then there's a bit of a surprise. There's a surprise in these opening verses. Remember, all of creation is assembled into this cosmic courtroom. That means both those groups of people who don't name this God, don't like this God, pretend he's not there, have made up their own gods, and also the other group of people in the Old Testament, God's people, those who identify with him. To use the language of Joshua, those who are on the Lord's side. Both his people and those not his people are assembled, but look who he addresses. In judgment, he says, verse 5, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me. You say, that sounds nice, not like judgment. Yeah, but look at verse 7. Hear, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you. What? Us? Can't you hear it? Can't you imagine All earth assembled in the cosmic courtroom. God's going to lay out justice. And Israel says, yeah, get them. Show them how dumb they are. Show them how heinous their idolatry is. Take it home, Lord. Go for it. And he says, "Uh, no, I mean you. Let's start with you. It'd be shocking. One of my few speeding tickets was in Durango, Colorado. Few is a relative term, isn't it? It's, uh, it's elastic. It, 
It can mean more than three, um, if you look it up. So I got a ticket in Durango a few years ago while we lived here in Albuquerque, and I wanted to just pay the bill online or send in the check, whatever. You know, yeah, I was guilty. Um, let me pay it, and I'll move on with my life. But this is one of those tickets for some reason where you have to come back and go to court. Not because it was so bad. I think it's just the Durango system. Um, they're either lonely up there, or they want you to come back and buy more T-shirts, uh, ride the train again for 90 bucks per kid or something whatever it is. But regardless, uh, because this was a small court, small town court, the docket had a smorgasbord of uh, different offenses and offenders. You got speeding ticket people like me. Uh, You got drug dealers, unlike me. Um, You have the person who, you know, tried to skip town on their bail and all that. And so I sat through maybe five to seven cases before mine was up, and it was interesting. It was amusing. I was having fun. Uh, It was kind of scary because the judge seemed awful grouchy. (laughs) Seemed like it was part of the punishment. Whatever you did, part of the punishment was just getting berated and ridiculed by this judge as you sat there. Uh, But I, I was comfortable because I was thinking, oh, these are legit criminals. I mean... That guy's a hooligan, you know. Dude, pull up your pants in front of the judge. You know, girl with tattoo on the neck was chewing gum while she was answering the the judge disrespectfully. And you're just thinking, oh, she doesn't have a chance. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm thinking, I'm in good shape. I I just did a speeding ticket, wearing khakis, (laughs) you know. I have my, my little girl with me. I brought my daughter with me because uh, that's what homeschoolers do. They look for opportunities to teach them life lessons. And <laughs> So I thought I was in good shape. I have a clean record. And uh, I thought I'd pay it and that'd be it. But he said, wait a minute, were you on this road? Yes. Yeah, whatever the road was. And which way were you going? Um... I remember the direction, but you were going uphill? You were going that fast uphill? I thought you were going downhill. And he just let loose. I got the berating. Me and the khakis and the cute little kid. My daughter was embarrassed for me. I was shocked. It went on and on. He kept looking down at the ticket and not saying anything. Kept looking up at me and not saying anything. And I was thinking, where can this go? Like... I'm just getting a ticket, right? You can't arrest me for going uphill fast, can you? And it, it didn't go anywhere other than me having to pay a ticket and having higher insurance premiums for a little bit. But, but it reminded me that, man, I, guilty is guilty, right? And judge is judge. And I may have caught this judge at a bad time. Or he might have a you know, little man complex and he likes this job because he gets to be mean to people, especially mean people with guns. But, but God is righteous in his judgment. And he also judges his people. He doesn't just judge the worst of the lot. He judges. He's a judge and a righteous judge. And he doesn't have bad days. And he's not arbitrary. And he doesn't have a little man complex in the least. Now notice, before God lays out any specifics in his case against his people, he almost just in passing reminds them of their covenant, their history with this God. Look at verse 7 again. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, let me take out just a few of the words there to shorten it up and see if this sounds familiar to you because it does echo an important part of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, I am God, your God. What's that echoing? Anyone know? It's Deuteronomy 6, a classic text for God's people. Listen to Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might and 
And these words that I'm commanding you today, they'll be on your heart. And you'll teach them diligently to your children. You'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And, and I think you know the rest of it, right? You, you put it as a sign on your doorpost. Well, for millennia, God's people have called this the Shema, the Shema, which means in Hebrew, hear or listen. Hear, O Israel. This became their banner. This became their vision statement. This became their slogan, whatever you want to call it. It reminded them of God's covenant relationship and their covenant responsibilities with this covenant-making God. Deuteronomy 1 through 6. 48 times you see the phrase, the Lord your God. The Lord your God. That's almost, that is eight times on average per chapter. That's a lot of repetition. And so I think Psalm 50 is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 6. The Lord is your God, and your God said, Listen up, hear, O Israel. Hear. Remember God's covenant-making ways, his purposes to love you and for you to love him and for you to walk in his ways, to rehearse his commandments and teach teach his commandments to your children. So that's the basis for which God addresses his people here as judge. He's in covenant with them, he loves them, he's merciful to them, and yet they keep breaking his commandments. So as 1 Peter 4 says, verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter says eventually there's going to be an end time judgment. In the meantime, God is good and he is faithful to have small judgments with his people, to discipline us. That's why suffering exists in general, Peter says. We suffer now that we might have more glory later so that we might be better prepared. Our faith might be refined as as gold in the fire and better prepared for heaven and what's to come. Yes, God is the judge of all creation, but he is the judge of his people too. And so I think he comes to us today through his word and he has loving fatherly judgment for us. He condemns ritualism in Psalm 50. That's the second thing in your notes. He condemns ritualism. That's really the sin that he's after, the first part of it anyway. Verses 7 to 15 talk about this. Now, remember, Old Testament had all kinds of rituals, and these were rituals that God gave, not ones that Israel made up. God gave plenty of rituals in the Old Testament, but he always condemns ritualism. There's a difference. There are rituals that have purpose and point to something. They have meaning and symbolism. But if you get the symbolism wrong and you think that there's something going on mystical in the act itself, or that you're earning God's favor by doing these steps, one, two, three, four, and that's ritualism. It wasn't that these folks hadn't done their duty of performing sacrifices. They'd done it well. Look at verse 8. It's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. I gave them to you. I'm glad you're doing them. In fact, your burnt offerings are continually before me. You're not looking to skip them. You're not inconsistent. You're not lazy. But they had a wrong view of sacrifices, apparently. And that changes everything. They put sacrifices on their ear... And they inverse the, the whole thing. For one, they treated sacrifices as just empty actions, mere routine. And when this happened other times in God's story of the Old Testament, God, God said he hated their, their sacrifices and their ritualism. Like Isaiah 1, where he says, "'What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?' I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. So bring no more, notice this key phrase, vain offerings, empty 
offerings. Your incense is an abomination. New moon and Sabbath, your calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Now these are odd verses because... God says he hates a bunch of stuff that he came up with. He gave his people. He gave them these feasts. He gave them the the incense offerings and sacrifices of beasts and bulls and lambs and goats. But as they made them empty, and as they brought their iniquity in with these sacrifices, then God hated the whole thing. As the sacrifice no longer represented what God intended it to represent, then it was empty, it was wicked, and God didn't want it. He doesn't want sacrifices that are a part of a barter system. He never gave sacrifices for that kind of thing, or he doesn't give commandments in the New Testament for that kind of thing, where you do these things and you work hard at them and be sincere and diligent in them, and I'll bless you. No bartering. This judge doesn't take bribes. This judge hates payoffs. See, it's a misunderstanding of what sacrifice, what worship is all about. And it's also a misunderstanding of God himself. Psalm 50, those being addressed there, are not only misunderstanding what sacrifices were for, they're misunderstanding what God is all about. Because you see, God needs nothing. Let's read those verses again that say it. Verses 9 and following. It says in verse 9, I'll not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. And that sounds like uh, I don't want any more sacrifices. That's not what he's saying, though. Uh, The best translation in the Hebrew would read something like, I will not take a bull from your house. It fits with what comes after. I don't take bulls from your house. I don't don't go stealing goats from your fold. Why? Verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I even own your bulls, your goats, your calves too. But still, I don't go stealing them. There are plenty just meandering out there for me to take if I wanted to. But I'm not in need of them. He says in verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. It's absurd to think of God who's a spirit, has no body, has no stomach, needs no food, being hungry, but even plays the man here and says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't go knocking on your door. I wouldn't say, please, can I have some? Will you share? I own the world and all, all things in it. And by the way, verse 13, I don't eat. I don't eat the flesh of bulls. I don't drink the blood of goats. He needs nothing. It's what Paul said as he preached to idolaters in Acts 17. In the city of Athens, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands. He doesn't have a dwelling place. He says this even while there's a temple in Jerusalem, most likely. There's a temple there, and they thought that God lived there. But Paul says he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands as though he needed a house with your construction plans. As though he needed anything, in fact. God doesn't need anything. No, Paul says, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. It's not in us that he lives and moves and has his being. He doesn't live and die by us. We live and die by him. And it's just the opposite of the idols of ancient Near Near East. So the time, the writing of Psalms, And before that, it would have been understood what the idols around them were 
like, what they expected, at least what people came up for them to expect. This is described in so many places in Scripture. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 46. We sing about it sometimes here, Psalm 115, right? Where Scripture mocks the idols of the world. And it keeps pointing out, you have to, you have to buy gold if you're rich to start with an idol, right? To, to get an idol going. Then you have to hire a craftsman to carve that gold. If you're poor and you can't afford gold, well, you're going to buy a nice piece of driftwood. And then you've got you've to carve it or hire someone to carve it. And they, they make it into a shape and they sand it smooth and they oil it. But then you've got to carry it. It burdens your donkey when you're around. You gotta, if it's on your donkey and you're leaving it, you have to take it with you. It can't walk, it, though it has legs. And they thought, that these sacri- they thought that these idols would want food. They knew they couldn't get up and get their own food, so they, they would put food before it, like a, like a sacrifice, like a gift. You do this, and the idol will make it well for you. How did he make it well for you? Well, I didn't know. It was very vague. But it was very clear what they needed to do for the idol. You have to carry it. You have to care for it. You have to clean it. You have to feed it. That's why they're always so chubby. <laughs> but not God. You see, idols are needy and they don't do anything. Our God isn't needy. And he works. He helps. He cares. He gives. He's the opposite of the idols surrounding Israel at this time. Now think of how this applies to our worship today in the new covenant. Whether that be everyday worship, whatever you do, eating, drinking, anything else, to be the glory of God, or Sunday morning corporate worship. Is it empty? Is it just form to you? Is it ritualistic? Is it thoughtless? Or maybe you're fixated on a form. Maybe you think true worship prays like this. It sounds sincere like this. It goes this long. It has this amount of space after you say, let's pray, and before you say, dear Heavenly Father. It's this frequent. Singing looks like this. It always has hands raised. It never has hands raised. It's this loud. It's that quiet. Have you invented new rules that God has not prescribed? Are you thinking worship is about externals? Do you realize that it's possible for true worship and blasphemous worship to look exactly the same on the outside? Do we think it's meritorious? where it gives us marriage, it earns something with God. We do X, Y, and Z, whether throughout the week or on Sunday, and we make a storehouse of favors there that we can tap into when we get into trouble. Instead, we should believe that worship is not coming to give to God as though he needed anything. It is coming to get from God. He's glorified when we recognize our need. We call out to him and he helps. He's not glorified when we think that he's lacking something that you can supplement, a need that you can meet. It's not why he made creation, not because he needed anything, but for his glory mysteriously and lovingly for his glory. That's all we know. He doesn't need us. He's not improved by us. We don't really give anything to God. You say, well, I thought I gave money to God. Who's money? There's no giving that he hasn't first given to us. Even in our giving and our serving, it is really a getting from him. 
That's why Peter says, 1 Peter 4, whoever serves should serve in such a way that he serves in God's strength. So God gets the glory. In other words, there's a way to serve. And you get the glory, there's a way to serve, and God gets the glory, and he wants the latter. God hates ritualism because it inverts the relationship between him and his people. It turns his people into givers, not getters. It turns him into getter, a getter, not a giver. Now, before you feel too beat up, Notice the real point of these verses. It's yes to rebuke, but the real point of these verses, verses 9 to 12, is to show how loving and caring and even condescending, condescendingly good our God is. Yes, the judge is angry, but get this, the judge is angry because we haven't sufficiently leaned on him. We haven't sufficiently used him. We haven't sufficiently asked of him. That's what verse 15 says. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. He doesn't call on you in the day of trouble and you give to him and he glorifies you. You call on him. There's no storehouse of your earning of favors you tap into. He just gives and gives and gives because he's glorified to. He's eager to help and he'll have it no other way. That's why Jeremiah 32 says that he'll rejoice in doing us good. He'll rejoice in doing us good with all of his heart, with all of his soul. Or Psalm 147, that his delight is not in the strength of a horse as it goes into battle. It's not in the, the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, lean on him, depend upon him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord are roaming about throughout all the earth. What? What's God looking for? He's looking to show himself strong in the hearts of those who are his. Oh, he's, he is eager. He's a scout. He's on the lookout to show himself strong in your life. And yet, we sadly say by implication, no, I got it. I'm good. I think you might mess it up. I'll take this one. It's easy. It's something I can do and do it well. We better know this well, this habit of not trusting self but leaning on him because it may be an issue of eternity. Doesn't this all sound like gospel talk? Isn't the gospel the fullest reality of verse 15? Isn't Jesus upon the cross the greatest fulfillment of verse 15? that we call upon him in the greatest day of trouble. Not the day of trouble where, where someone dies, as hard as that might be, or losing a job, or big tax payment to come, or retirement seems impossible. Call upon me in the day of eternal trouble, the greatest trouble being that we're born under his wrath and just judgment if there isn't a substitute who will die in our place. Call upon me, And Jesus will deliver you, for he died in your place. He rose on the third day victoriously. Trust in that and glorify him. You see, it's the gospel. That's where this whole thing was going. That's why Psalm 50 is so important. And that's why God is so eager to confront his people with their self-reliance and their twisted view of serving him. What God wants is weakness and dependence and then trust, then thankfulness and glorifying him. You see, Old Testament sacrifices, just to wrap up this section, were supposed to help Israel see their need and their dependence, not to make them feel strong or righteous. These sacrifices were to point them to salvation, 
Because the sacrifices never took away any sins. That's why they had to keep doing them and doing them and doing them and doing them. It never solved the problem. And that was a good thing. Because it pointed them to one who would come. And he would take away sin perfectly and completely and once for all. So take note. You get God wrong and everything falls apart. All is lost. It doesn't matter how faithful the form or the frequency of your worship, your sacrifices, your obedience, your devotions, your witnessing, your prayers. He condemns ritualism, but then verse 16 begins a new section that we'll deal with a little more quickly. He hates hypocrisy too. It's the third thing in your notes. He hates hypocrisy. Notice that verse 16 makes a shift. It begins with but, and then he addresses a new group of people. To the wicked, God says. Now, I don't think the wicked here means the nations, uh, the foreigners, those who didn't believe in Yahweh God, but turned to other gods. Now, usually wicked in the Old Testament does refer to those kinds of folks. I think here it's different. Because notice the wicked in verse 16 are people within the covenant. They recite his statutes. Apart from just a few odd people like Rahab in the Old Testament, you didn't have too many who recited his statutes and took his covenant upon their lips if they weren't born in Israel and among God's people. So these are Jews. These are Israelites. These are people, nationally speaking, of the covenant. Ethnically speaking, they're part of God's people, but they're hypocrites. You see, the first group in Psalm 50 seems sincere, but mistaken. They're busy about sacrifice. They're faithful in their obedience and diligence, but they're mistaken about the nature of the sacrifices and what God is like and what he expects of them. The second group who isn't sincere the second group most likely wouldn't care too much about the sacrifices. They name the covenant. They've memorized a couple of verses, perhaps. They say that they're with God when necessary. They say that. But there's little to no evidence that it's real. It's like Isaiah 29, which Jesus quoted in the New Testament. He says, they draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this group thinks it's enough to just confess, to just verbalize it, to say, that's me. I'm with that group. And God here is pointing out that he calls them to worship him with everything in heart, and body and lips. They're to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. Now their occasional identification with the God of the Bible is meaningless. That's proven a few different ways. Look, verse 17, they hate discipline. They say that they're his, but they hate discipline. I think that's both positive and negative discipline, or self-imposed and God-imposed discipline. Proverbs talks about it. Discipline being that which you should do and sometimes don't want to do, and discipline also being correction from God or from those whom God has given us to correct us, like parents. They hate discipline. They dismiss God's word, it says in verse 17, or maybe they dismiss parts of it. They cast God's word behind them. They, they do a buffet of what they like. Something like 2 Timothy 4, right? They pick teachers for themselves according to their own liking, maybe. It says also they rejoice in evil in verse 18. They celebrate it. They see a robbery going on and they chuckle. Their closest company and their most comfortable company is with bold unbelievers. And they have unbridled tongues in verse 19. One example of their tongues being out of control is deceit. 
And then another, verse 20, is gossip. You sit and speak against your brother? You slander your own mother's son? How many of us would think, yeah, so? You slander your own mother's son. How many of us would say, oh, but you don't know him? <laughs> I mean, I could tell you some stories. <laughs> I'll tell you one. So, and, and that's what this is talking about. We do it all the time. Ever thought there are certain sins that are important litmus tests that may indicate something about our hearts either being hard and stone or alive and beating to God's glory and ways and that one of them is simply gossip? And what is gossip at root? destroying someone with our words. It's judging someone, pretending we're their judge. It's involving other people. It's, if we're honest, it's far less innocent, we might think. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There's certain things we shouldn't let each other do. There are certain things that we shouldn't call struggles. We should call it something more ugly, hypocrisy. Gossip is hypocrisy. Lying is hypocrisy. Now, those who are redeemed and forgiven are, are not innocent of hypocrisy. In a sense, every sin is a form of hypocrisy. For those who have new hearts, it is. Most of us also have these ongoing areas of Sin, pet sins, we, taught, we called them last week. That's some of us in our hypocrisy here, but there are other forms of hypocrisy. There are those who are redeemed and forgiven, but they're making a contented, habitual lifestyle of a certain sin or a certain area of sins, and they're growing in the wrong direction. You know, your parents may have called it backsliding if you grew up in church. Sin's becoming more characteristic of who you are. That's a more dangerous form of hypocrisy. There are those who name the covenant, but there is, like these folks, little to no evidence whatsoever. Maybe they go to church and do the bare minimum, and maybe they do the bare minimum of religious effort and discipline simply because it's easier to do it than to totally back out. Is that you? The Greek word for this is hypocrisis. And it means stage playing, playing the man, acting. There's a, another kind of hypocrisy. It's in our country. You certainly didn't see it in New Testament times when persecution was a real threat. But you certainly saw it in Old Testament times as they grew up in a nation that had a, a public identification, religious identification kind of hypocrisy that's truly only a name. It's merely cultural. It's only based on what mom and dad did. So maybe you say you're a Christian, but it's the barest belief and it has absolutely no consequence in the rest of life. Or there's also the Pharisee-like hypocrisy, meticulous in your devotion, externally doing better than the median Christian and darn proud of it. Jesus had a lot to say especially about that kind of hypocrisy. Which, which kind of hypocrisy do you have? What kind of hypocrite are you? If you're a critic of the church and a critic of, of Christianity, and you say, the church is filled with hypocrites, I say, I know it is. It's not the only place, though. And there are different kinds of hypocrites. So you, Christian... Test yourself with those few things listed in Psalm 50. Go to the New Testament. Go to 1 John and see other litmus tests for what it means to be in Christ and to identify with him. For instance, love for the brothers. Jesus says through John there, it makes no sense to say that you have his love and you won't love others. It's easy to think in shades of gray. It's easier to give greater or lesser weight to certain commandments 
so that we look better than we really are or to make ourselves feel better than we really are. But remember, there are ultimately only two paths. In the end, there are only two paths. That's how this psalm ends. The fourth thing in your notes, there are only two paths. Verses 21 and 22 give a warning, a stern one. But then verse 23 gives hope and invitation. Verse 21 says, these things you've done and I've been silent. And you thought I was one like yourself. In other words, you thought my silence meant passivity or permission. You thought my silence meant absence. Second Peter 3 talks about this. It seems like God has gone so long without judgment, surely he's forgotten about it, or maybe he's not there, or it won't be that bad if he's this patient. And Peter says, actually, he's going to set this thing ablaze. Strong language. And strong language here. Verse 22 of Psalm 50 says, Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. Those who don't get that they have no hope but God's mercy and love shown in Christ have bought into a sin and sins and sinfulness so heinous, so rebellious, God will tear them apart in the end if they don't flee to the mercy that's in Christ. And verse 23 points to that. Gently so, mysteriously so, it says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I'll show the salvation of God. Now that's more hopeful than verses 21 and 22, but that still sounds a little bit like Get this right and you'll get salvation. Straighten up the path. Make your sacrifices like I told you and you'll get salvation. But that's not it at all. It's not that sacrifices lead to salvation, but sacrifices, or in the new covenant, our worship, our devotion, our obedience, indicate something so much deeper It indicates something of how we view God and how we view what he expects and how we view salvation. And it indicates something of whether we have salvation. In other words, Psalm 50 says, our sacrifice is really just thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving for everything, including salvation. It sandwiches it all together. So it looks a little blurred, but we we don't just have one verse to give us this good news. We have a whole Bible to make it very, very clear. And so it tells us sacrifices or thankfulness or walking in righteousness or right worship doesn't lead to salvation. But those who are helpless and needy and call on him will receive help, salvation, fellowship. And they will sacrifice life with thankfulness and joy. And they will praise him. One day, they'll do that even without sin.